Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Well, it's good to be here with you today. Uh, you guys know the drill. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five. Go on, tell him that you love him. You guys excited to be here? Some of you? All right. Excited that you made it here today. Uh, hey, turn to your uh, second neighbor, and uh, I want you to say, Go, Duke Blue Devils. Come on. Go do. Go do. Right. They're going to win the national championship this year, guys. They got it. Gonzaga. Do we have any Gonzaga fans here? A few of you. I like, I like, I, hey, 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 hey. I like, I like Gonzaga. I think they're going to go far, but I just, I love Duke. Everybody else hates Duke. It's just funny how all the teams I love, everybody else hates. I don't, it's weird, dude. The devil, come on, the devil's a liar. Um, well, hey, we're in this uh, sermon series called Thoughts and Things. How many of you were here last week? Okay, uh, many, maybe about half of you. Uh, last week we talked about how uh, your thoughts have mighty causal power. Proverbs 23, verse 7, I think it is, uh, says, it's talking about a miser, but uh, as a man or a woman thinks in his or her heart, so is he or she. So your thoughts have great depth, have great texture, we talked about that. And then we, if, if you were here, just uh, for our recollection, we talked about how none of us in this room have a behavior problem, right? We don't have uh, a food addiction problem or a porn addiction problem or an infidelity problem or adultery problem first or a problem with isolation or a problem with anxiety first. When it comes to our lives and how we disorder our lives, we have a problem with our thinking, Ultimately, this is kind of the thesis of this whole uh, message series that we're going to be in for the next four years. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five. What you think about, everyone say think. Come on. Everyone say think. What you think about ultimately is what will define uh, the trajectory of your life, will, sh- will give shape to uh, your behavior. Uh, and again, last week, we talked about how Jesus won uh, the decisive victory over our unfit minds. Uh, he won the victory at the cross over sin as a singular power, over every anti-creation force uh, that we know in the world. Jesus won that victory for us. So in the words of one New Testament scholar, what is true of you is also true of Jesus. Or what is true of Jesus is also true of of us. And so we, we work from a place, unfortunately, Drake is wrong. We don't start from the bottom and go to the top, right? We, we start from a place of victory. Can I get an amen? Uh, in faith, in repentance, in the waters of baptism, we start from a place of victory when it comes to our thought life. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about how to overcome anxiety, depression. We'll, we'll be dealing with depression. Uh, we will talk about the good life, um, true joy. For some of you, if you're like a happy um, person, thinker, whatever. We'll talk about uh, happiness. Uh, we'll talk about a lot of different ways in which God wants to transform our thinking uh, because I really do believe that Jesus wants to change how you think so you can reflect his goodness back into this world. Can I get an amen, church? 
So we talked about that last week. So if that's true, if we have the victory in Jesus, that's our starting point, Chris. Question is, maybe you've thought about this, and this is the thought that I want to kind of tease out here today. Why is it so hard to think right? Have you ever struggled with your life? Four of you, okay. I mean, in, in all honesty, come on, how many of you struggle with your thought life? Right, have you ever had a day, anyone, anyone have a bad day? Like, yeah, a day, and it just felt like, like um, your thoughts were like a Post Malone rap song, right? You just, you're not quite sure what's being said, but it's tequila, some, 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 tequila, some, some. Just, what I'm trying to say is, Am I speaking the truth? I've never, please don't go home and listen to Post Malone. I'm not, I'm not endorsing his music, but um, I've heard, right? Uh, I've heard uh, some, some of those lyrics. Uh, some of us, when it comes to our thought life, man, um, it, we find it very difficult to control our thoughts, right? Sometimes our thought world seems to be ungovernable. Uh, it's like our thoughts are capricious. They take on a life of their own. They're defiant. They're like disobedient children. They don't do what you want them to do. I don't have a problem like that in my house. Maybe you do. Anyways, uh, um, thoughts can take on a life of their own. So, Chris, are you telling me that we have the, if we have the victory in Jesus, why is it so gosh darn hard to think stinking straight, Right? Or in, in, in not just in our thought world, why is it so difficult as followers of Jesus? How many followers of Jesus do we have here, okay? And I'm sure we all can relate to this. Why is it, like, more often than not, why is it so hard to read Scripture and fully commit to reading Scripture? Why is it that uh, if you're married here, why is it so difficult to do something as simple as pray with our spouses, right? Why, why is it hard, maybe it's a dad, mom, whatever, um, um, a boss, why is it so hard to speak the truth in love when so, it, it just feels easier to speak the truth in uh, anger and impatience, right? Like no one uh, at, uh, today at 1.30 will say, okay, I'm going to work really hard to, to think anxious thoughts, right? And I'm going to get uh, just, uh, and I'll kind of bring full circle what, I, what I'm talking about. Or no one tonight at 9.30 is going to say, Hey, um, I'm just going to, because I think it's the right thing to do, I think I'm going to um, uh, just lust, right? No one, no one goes, goes into either anxiety or lust or comparison or jealousy, all these toxic um, behaviors or even thoughts that disorder our lives. We don't just, it, it seems like it's easy, the point that I'm trying to make. Why is it so hard to think right? Why is it so hard to maybe do the right thing? I've had days where watching reruns of Judge Judy and eating Lucky Charms, poison, I might add, Lucky Charms seems to be easier than reading Scripture. So, Chris, why, why do we have such a hard time when it comes to uh, thinking straight? Why do we have such a hard time when it comes to practicing the right habits? Well, I think Paul, which I know, Paul has an answer to this, and I think it's important that we kind of expose this hidden invisible world that Paul's going to mention in Ephesians chapter 6 and he will tell us why at times it's difficult to do the right thing and why sometimes it's easier right to do the wrong thing has anyone ever experienced that even though you're a follower of Jesus and this is crucial 
We don't get this, or we don't understand this kind of message today. It's going to be hard for us to address anxiety. It's going to be hard to address depression. It's going to be hard to address um, certain behaviors that, that go in the opposite direction of Jesus' purpose for our life. So we come to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're just going to read just a few verses. Paul tells us the truth about what's out there. And he begins in verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So Paul tells us throughout the, the book of Ephesians uh, that there is a power struggle. The whole book of Ephesians is centered around unity. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. Paul talks about marriage, the relationship between husband and wife. Uh, Paul also talks about the relationship between moms and dads and their kids at the beginning of Ephesians 6. So Paul, throughout the book of Ephesians, is telling us, okay, what does it mean to be the church? How we, how we can walk in unity? Um, what does it mean to be a dad, a mom? What does it mean to be a husband, wife? And then he comes to verse 10 and 11. In verse 11, he says, what you need to do is you got to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Everyone say stand. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're going to go there today. Some of you are getting spooked out right now. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We don't wrestle against white supremacy first. We don't wrestle against the Republicans or the, the Dems, right, the Democrats. We don't wrestle against um, isms or postmodernism or whatever you want to talk about. We, we don't wrestle against angry vegans or angry online social media presence, right, we don't wrestle against people. We wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, everyone say, therefore. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The first thing that Paul wants us to do is to live in God's truth. We're going to be talking about that today. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Verse 19, and also pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, Okay, you ready for this? Paul essentially is telling us that there's a hidden, invisible world out there that we cannot see. Here in Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to get to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 here really quick. Paul is essentially saying the cosmos. Everyone say the cosmos. The world of space and time and matter, right? The world in which we inhabit is engulfed in spiritual warfare. Um, some of you, you might be thinking that, oh, I, I come to that hyper-Pentecostal church today, right? So I'm going to quote a Baptist for you, okay? And this is what he said. The there are mysterious realities afoot 
in the cosmos that we cannot see that attempt to frustrate the plan of God for his people. I'll quote an Anglican uh, theologian and priest. He basically calls every Western thinker a wretched flat earther, which essentially means just because we deny the hidden, this hidden invisible world teeming with spiritual beings doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, for example, this last year, many of you know, my wife had uh, twin baby boys, and they were born at 34 weeks, and uh, because they were premature, we were in the NICU for uh, about a month, right, babe? So about a month, 25, 28 days, we're in the NICU, and I've, we, we've shared some of our experiences in the NICU, and it was, it was hell. I think we need to pray for those who are in the NICU. Can I get an amen to that? We saw another side of life being in the NICU and the struggle of parents and, and little children. And so obviously our heart, hearts went out for obviously our, our kids and, and other kids. But uh, one thing our pediatrician told us and the doctors at the NICU made it very clear that if you're going to come into the NICU, you have to vigorously, everyone say vigorously, you got to vigorously wash your hands. Can, can I just, with a show of hands, how many of you wash your hands? Okay, if you did not raise your hand, we ask you to leave the church. <laughs> that is disgusting. Can, I'm going to say, have you ever been in a restroom and someone goes to the bathroom and they don't wash their hands? Okay, how many of you judge that person? I do, right? There's something about being clean. Can I get an amen? So our, our pediatrician and our doctors made it very clear, back to the point, um, that we had to vigorously wash our hands for two minutes. So we had antibacterial soap, right? And uh, I remember I'm kind of a freak when it comes to this kind of stuff. I don't know why, just my mind. <laughs> Pastor Ken said amen to that. He knows. I, my brain just goes to dark places. Uh, and so um, I, I remember I would roll up my sleeves and I wash uh, for the top of my fingertips all the way to my elbow, right? in scalding water. I did just, I'm weird. I didn't care. I just wanted to protect my kids. So you wash vigorously for two minutes. And uh, then I would put on hand sanitizer. I put on hand sanitizer. That's probably why I'm like twitching a little bit. I put it on for about a month every 15 minutes. It, it just was like, I just was kind of a freak when it came to that. And obviously the reason why we did that, and we all know why, is because there's a hidden invisible world filled with germs. Right? It's crazy. Bacteria can float in the air. Viruses, I don't know much about viruses, but they're little capsules that contain genetic information that if they get a hold of a healthy cell, they'll hijack it and fill it with sickness. Right? So we, we, we understand and we've been taught that there are microbes. Is that, is that right, Scott? Microbes in this, uh, when it comes to the naked eye, that we cannot see that are floating around. And it's imperative in order to keep ourselves from getting sick and our family members from getting sick, that we got to clean our hands. Well, Paul is saying something like that in Ephesians chapter 6. There are not werewolves and witches floating around in the cosmos, but there is a vast society of spiritual intelligent beings that have been defeated by Jesus at the cross but they are out there in this kind of overlapping world of different dimensions by which we live in that are intent 
on frustrating the plan of God in our lives. Now, one thing, when, it's funny, when, when, we, when, when we talk about spiritual warfare, when we talk about um, spiritual beings, like a vast society of spiritual beings, and I've heard this many times before, my reaction has always been to leave the service, like, spooked. Right? Like, and so I don't want you to get crazy. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't get crazy, right? One bad reaction to what I'm preaching about, it's bad, and it's just, it's not healthy, is, is to go out and to attribute everything you experience in life to a little tiny demon, right? Just because you have a cough, man, stop blaming the devil, right? Wash your stinking hands. So one thing we don't want to do is attribute everything to the devil, but I don't think that's our problem here at this church. I think we're too smart for that. I think our problem is that we've so accommodated a Western materialist vision of the world that we deny its reality. So we're wondering why we're struggling in our thoughts. Like, where did that thought come from? And you say it exactly like that. Like you, you wonder why you struggle when it comes to thinking straight or maybe really engaging God in Scripture. And I'm going to talk about this in a little bit in the spiritual practices. Why is it so hard? Well, it's because the cosmos is engulfed in spiritual warfare. Now, let me just say this really quick before we get weird, right? Colossians chapter 1 tells us, and Paul essentially maps out the universe. What he does, I recommend you read it. He places Jesus at the center of the universe. So basically everything runs through King Jesus. Everyone breathe a sigh of relief. So we believe that Jesus runs the world, right? He's in charge from everything from governments to galaxies. Do you believe that? We believe that God is in control through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. We believe that. Then we come to chapter 2. After Paul kind of maps out the cosmos and tells us that Jesus is the king of the world, he says, at the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers. Everyone say all the powers. By his triumph over them. I love this. He made a public spectacle. What does a public spectacle mean? Uh, do you remember when the Cowboys played the Saints this last year? They made a public stinking spectacle of them. Sorry, my, my Saints fans. I love you guys, right? Uh, when, you, when you dominate or shame someone as an athlete, and I used to experience this all the time by dominating, right, people, when, when it came to golf and tennis, right, you make a public spectacle of them. This, and it's a paradox, but at the cross, this is what Jesus did to the powers. He shamed them. He exhausted their power through his death, and he won a decisive victory over evil. So, we don't have to be spooked by flying witches and goblins, right? But we also cannot deny the reality that there is a universe, in the words of one Baptist ethicist, alive and teeming with spiritual powers. So where does this battle take place, right? Where's the struggle at? Because Paul tells us, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we have powers that are scheming. Everyone say scheming. 
scheming to frustrate, scheming against the family, scheming against your marriage, scheming against the purposes of God, scheming against the church, trying to, to get in to frustrate the purposes, the mighty purposes of God for every person in this room. Where do these powers attack? Right? How do they do it? Many of us, let's just get rid of the medieval caricature of the devil, right? Like the devil, in other words, is not going to attack you straight on. Like one day when you wake up in the morning, you hear a doorbell, you open up the door, and right in front of you, you have the devil, right? Pointy ears, right? Long red tail. And he looks at you and says, hey, I'm going to come and just torment you today if that's okay with you. Right? The devil's not going to come straight on and reveal himself. He's going to use subterfuge. He's going to twist things. He's going to come after your 2 Corinthians 10 is what Paul tells us. So we move from Ephesians 6 to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. If you're a fighter, if you've ever been in a fight, you're going to love this. Anyone ever been in a fight? Okay. Uh, I, I mentioned this like uh, three months ago, and there was one gentleman. He's not here today. When I asked that question, he raised his hand. He looked at me as if he wanted to fight me. So... <laughs> So I'm not a fighter, I'm a philosopher, but if you love fights, you've been in a fight. If you love Fight Club, ah, if you like The Warrior, that's a better one, right? If you like Cinderella Man, that's the best, right? You just love fighting, you're going to love this. This is what Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive. Wow, that's a pretty, that's some strong language. Right? So Paul's essentially saying, hey, we're not living in peacetime. That there's some thoughts that, man, they're not neutral. Like there's some thoughts that run through our heads that Man, they're not static things, arbitrary things, but they've been planted by spiritual forces disguised as your voice in your head. It says we got to destroy these arguments. You ain't in peacetime. Like our life is engulfed in cosmic warfare. We can still rest. We don't have to freak out. We can still have the peace of God. Can I get an amen? But that does not downplay the reality of this hidden invisible world and the intent of spiritual forces to stop what God has and wants to do in us. Verse 6, Paul concludes, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So let me just say this really quick. So these powers want to frustrate the plan of God because we don't have a behavior problem. We have a problem with what? Our thoughts. So these powers will come to your thought world, your symbolic universe, which ultimately defines who you will become in life. In other words, how many of you want to be transformed into the image of Jesus? Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. So transformation of the mind takes place in our thoughts. Also, the deformation of our lives, 
also takes place in our thoughts. So the question is, uh, how do we take every thought captive? Like, how, number one, how do we identify these strongholds, right? Because lies can be so powerful. What does it feel like to live a lie, you might ask? Well, it feels like living the truth. Lies are so powerful that they feel like truth. So how do we identify these arguments, these defiant thoughts, these thoughts that take us away from uh, Jesus himself? Before I answer that, I just, we got to go to John chapter 8, verse 43. Jesus is going to kind of give us a long argument here. And I'm going to bring you back to how we take every thought captive. Are you still with me? He says in verse 43, why do you not understand? He's, he has all these interlocutors, so he's addressing all these religious rulers. And they're having a, a pretty extended conversation. So Jesus at this point of, of the conversation is frustrated. And this is what he says in verse 43. Why do you understand or why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. And then he says something, I mean, could you imagine someone saying this to religious leaders today? You are of your father the devil. Like we think of like Jesus like just spinning some homespun wisdom, and nice gentle meek Jesus. No, Jesus can, can, can speak the truth. He obviously says it in love, but you are the father of the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? And then he ends in verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So before we get to how do we take every thought captive, we've got to talk about this devil figure. The Bible calls him Hasatan, or the Satan. The Satan, Jesus tells us, is a pathological liar, right? What I love about this, and many commentators will tell you, that Hasatan, the Satan, is a spiritual, intelligent force, but he's given by Jesus and by Paul, and, and really throughout the uh, Old Testament as well, he's given um, a title, and the title is adversary. Hasatan is an adversary. He is an enemy of all the good purposes of God in this world. He's not given the dignity of a personal name. Hasatan is not a name, it's a title. He's a shadowy figure that works against an anti-creation personality that works against God's good purposes. Some scholars have suggested that he's like a prosecutor, a cosmic prosecutor. So he knows how to take truth and twist it. So Hasatan, the Satan, Jesus tells us, is a pathological liar. So he'll lie about worldview. He will lie about meta-narratives. He will lie about your waistline. He will lie about all things God. He will lie about your hair, right? He will lie about your kids. He will lie about your spouse. He will lie about your identity. He will lie about your story. He will lie and lie and lie. He will lie about what ultimately makes you happy. 
He's a liar, a pathological liar. And so he'll plant thoughts in your mind disguised as your voice. He uses disinformation, right, to, to graffiti your mind with dishonest information. He traffics. He's a trafficker in lies and deception. In fact, Jesus essentially is giving us an analysis of all evil. Dishonesty or deception is at the root of all evil. Why? Because this hasatan is the source of it. So he'll tell you that you're without hope. He'll exaggerate information. He'll distort it. He'll take half-truths and turn it upside down. And he is a master manipulator of information. So Jesus says, Jesus says, he is a pathological liar. Let me just say this really quick. The lies that Hasatan brings to the people of God, to our world of thinking, if we could deconstruct those lies, if we could dissect it, every lie, every iteration, the vast range of lies, the millions and millions and millions of lies Hasatan has told people are essentially structured around two things. Number one, take notes, you can write this down. God is not who he claims to be. You can find this in Genesis 3. We don't have time to get into it. But ultimately, the lie is structured around this idea that God is not enough. Please hear me. Some of us, most of us have built our life, or at least parts of our life, our identity around lies like this. God doesn't, in other words, God doesn't really care about your marriage. God doesn't care about your body. God doesn't care about your mind. God doesn't care about your kids. God doesn't care about your work. Your, um, he doesn't care about your happiness. God is like a taker. He's a cosmic killjoy, right? Have you ever heard something, an iteration of something like this? God is like an aesthetic monk. This is like some people in the street level thinking about God. God's like an aesthetic monk. monk. He's a misanthrope. He hates people. He hates the world. He's a cosmic, distant landlord. I think there's a, a TV show out there called Miracle Something. It's about God who's basically, he just hates the world. He wants to annihilate it. This is what the lie is structured around. God, in other words, a con artist, right? He's a non-generous father. The world does not overflow with generosity. God is distant. He does not care. In fact, Genesis chapter 3, the lie is structured around food justice. Eve gets ticked off when Hasatan, the shadowy figure, comes to her and says, hey, 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 you have all these trees, but God said you can't have this one tree. What's that about? Right? I mean, come on. God's holding out on you. Why can't you have that tree? Come on, Eve, God's not that good. And see, this is the problem. This, this is the lie. Um, this is what any lie is structured around, that God somehow is holding something back. And so for human history, the world has gone along for the ride. The reason why humans get twisted out of shape in their life is because what they do is they maximize God's prohibition and they minimize God's generosity. And so they obsess about what they can't have and they forget about all the good things that God has given them. In fact, God said in Genesis 2, you may freely eat. In the Hebrew it says eat, eat. Basically God said you can have all these millions of trees. They're all there for you. I don't know why I'm hopping. But you can't have one thing. 
I think the scales tip towards God's goodness and justice. Millions of trees versus one tree. And yet Eve starts to believe the lie. Man, you hold that on me. Right? God, you're a con artist. And so she maximizes God's prohibition. The lie is structured around this untruth. The second untruth is really simple. You actually can't get to this untruth if you don't begin with God's not good. The second untruth is you can be like chief Elohim in the Hebrew, or you can be like creator God. It simply means, um, well, because God's not good, you can take matters into your own hand, right? Or you, it kind of goes like this. It's a different iteration of that. You can say what is. You, come on, come on, come on, come on. You, because you're a radical, autonomous self, get to say what will give you happiness or not. In other words, this untruth is structured around, it's pretty simple, you can redefine good and evil, right? And so this has led many people down the road of misery and twisting their lives out of shape. The problem with this thought that you get to say what is, is that this is not our world, this is God's world, right? So God has built into everything a structure or a character to everything, right? So if you drink salt water, it will negatively affect your body, right? And there's logical inconsistency, we can talk more about this, but if you are a bachelor, you cannot be married at the same time, right? There, there are truths that God has woven in the fabric of the cosmos that we don't get a say to. So if you engage in anger, in lust, in slander, in the ways in which we twist our lives out of shape, what do you get? You only get death. You can't say, I get happiness through lust. Because God has designed this world in such a way that it only runs on love and peace and kindness and selflessness and picking up your cross and loving your neighbor. And when you do that, you get life. And life more abundantly. Are you hearing me? So the lie is structured around these two untruths. So how then do we fight the good fight of faith? How do we take back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10? How do we take every thought captive? How do we in this struggle, this cosmic warfare struggle, how do we apply the victory of God to our thought life? How do I overcome, in other words, depression? How do I overcome comparison and jealousy? Some of you, you are so paralyzed by chronic inadequacy because you don't know the truth of Jesus. That you come on Sundays and you get a good feel, but then Monday through Saturday you live a miserable life. How can you be the son and daughter that God has called you to be? Well, you do it by applying the victory of Jesus to your thought life. How do you do that? Well, John chapter 8, verse 31 through 38, Jesus says this. Are you guys still with me? Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, again, there's an extended conversation. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
And as you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is actually saying, give, how many of you want to be free first? Lord, have mercy. I want to be free. But many of us are in chains. How do we be free? Let me say this. Give up freedom. Don't worry about that. Focus on abiding in the truth of Jesus. Freedom will come. Anyways, get a little bit ahead of myself. He continues, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place. My word finds no place in you. My word finds no place in you. Man. And he continues, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus says that if you want to identify a lie, essentially, this is a paraphrase, you can't identify a lie by looking at a lie. Scott and I had this conversation probably about four years ago right outside our house. The only way you can identify counterfeit is by actually being familiar with the truth, right? Uh, I've shared this story before, but my wife and I, we moved, about four years ago, we moved downtown to the North End. We wanted to be with all the angry vegans. We love them. And all the Subarus. I'm kidding. I love vegans. Vegans love me. My wife was a raw foodist. Then she's a vegan. Now she eats meat. To God be the glory. So we were living downtown, and it's probably the first week. Again, some of you have heard this story. Uh, it was the first week we were there, and so we decided to have a yard. So I just love the North End. Like, if you leave stuff out, the next day it's all going to be gone, right? Just such a cool culture. So cool. <laughs> so we were having this yard sale. We're just kind of getting rid of stuff. And um, there's this couple, and I don't know if I was there. I might have been there. My memory is probably fading here. I'm 42, guys. I'm really old. Um, but this couple came to us, and they bought, like, a couple chairs. I think they gave us one $20 bill. And so um, we took the $20 bill. I had it for about, um, about a week. And so uh, we made about $75. We totally killed it in this yard. So <laughs> just amazing. We felt so good, guys. And so we went to the bank. I went to the bank, and I had some other cash, and I made a deposit. And thankfully, I knew this banker. This banker knew me. But he was taking... It's taking a long time. It took about five, six, seven minutes. I'm sitting in the car, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And then I'm starting to feel weird, and I have no reason to feel weird, right? So I'm like, why? What's, what's going on? And then the banker comes out, or whatever you call him, and he puts to the window this $20 bill. He smiles, and he says, this is a counterfeit. And I remember, I'm like, I sat there. I, did, I, I panic in these moments. So all I said, I think I said something like, well, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I promise. Like, I don't know how to make counterfeit money. Like, I'm just going off, you know. It's like, and he looks at me, and he says, no, I know. And I, I went through the whole story. I spent five minutes trying to convince him, I promise. Like, I'm not into counterfeit bills. And so I kind of took him to the story. He was fine with it. But it was amazing that I was walking around with a counterfeit and I didn't even know it. So I was praying about this this last week. I, 
I, I got a good sense that many of you here in this room, you're doing the same thing. You're not just carrying around a counterfeit bill, right? You're, counting, you're, you're carrying around in your life a counterfeit idea, thought. And you're frustrated. And you just, you, you, you're confused at times. You look at scripture and your own life and it just doesn't match up. And you're wondering what's going on. And you're building maybe, maybe not your whole identity, but parts of your identity around a lie. One lie. Or maybe two. Or maybe more. That has been spoken and placed in your mind. So here's the thing. This is how you identify a lie. The banker. This is what I love. And going back to what Scott and I, the conversation that we had. Bankers don't identify counterfeits by studying counterfeit bills, right? What they do is every single day they work with real, genuine money. Every day. They're in the money, right? Come on. How many want some more money? What am I talking? I'm not your self-help guru. Anyways, like it's in the money. And there's over and over every single day they know practice what's true and what's not. So what do they do? How they discover counterfeit bills is by simply knowing the truth. This is what Jesus is saying. You want freedom in your life, in your thought world. If you want freedom in your practices, in your habits, what you need to do is you need to learn to abide in the words of Jesus. Jesus essentially said that freedom and truth is the result of abiding in his words. Jesus in John 8 is saying here that his words, his presence, he'll say this later, are the reference point for reality, the reference point for the cosmos, for psychology, for the material world, for your mental world. His words are the truth. And when we learn to abide in his truth, we will know the truth, and the truth will make us free. So how do you abide? Well, we talk about this a lot. I can't, probably at the end of the sermon series, message series, we'll talk more about this. But you abide in God's truth by picking up spiritual practices. Spiritual practices, in other words, is spiritual warfare. In other words, when we pick up our Bibles to read on a consistent basis, when we memorize Scripture, when we pray Scripture, when we worship, if you're on, you have a long um, uh, way back to, to home after work, and you put on maybe a podcast, listen to some good teaching. When we listen to good teaching, when we fast, when we pray, when we saturate ourselves, immerse ourselves in God's Word, we'll begin to know the truth. In other words, the spiritual practices are not just for spiritual warfare. They are designed to bring your mind and your attention before God. Because the re where, where we go wrong is we actually turn our mind away from God. And turning our, way, our mind away from God because of a lie, what happens? We live a disordered life. So the first step when it comes to handling depression or anxiety or comparison 
or chronic inadequacy or all these things that affect or afflict our lives is to bring our mind to God's word and to let God's word change us. The the last thing that that you should try to do is to think. Well, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive because you're like, well, Chris, you're saying, okay, the way we're transformed is through the renewing of our mind. Does that imply thinking? The problem is our thinking is always stinking thinking. So what I'm not suggesting is sit in a chair for three hours, close your eyes, mmm, I'm thinking, right? Obviously, most of us don't do that. The way we bring our minds to God is through the spiritual practices. And when we do that, when we abide in God's word, the word of God begins to shape our mind, re-landscape our heart, our feels, our imagination. We, know, we begin to understand and know God's truth about our bodies, about sex, about culture, about pop culture, about the world, about purpose, come on, about our family. And that is when we experience God's freedom to be who he's called us to be. But you have to abide. I can't help you. I cannot help you with the war against depression or fear or anxiety or lust or greed or whatever is going on in your life if you choose not to abide in the words of Jesus. Here's the thing, man, if you listen to PM, Post Malone, or first service it was Kenny G. They didn't even know who Post Malone was, so I I made up Kenny G, right? (laughs) They totally got that. But if you listen to Post Malone for a long time, here's the thing. Neuropsychology has told us whatever gets access to your thoughts will affect you. I don't care who you are. It will affect you. So if you listen to Post Malone for a long time, you will start to think like Post Malone. Not only will you begin to think like Post Malone, you will see the world as he sees it. Why? Because you're abiding in his lyrics. And then one day, you're, you're somewhere drinking tequila. Behavior. Right? And I, Post, if, if, don't be mad at me. Post Malone, we love him. Come on, right? I just, I've never, I've never listened to his lyrics. I'm sure they're just absolutely horrible. But anyways, <laughs> the behavior of tequila and losing your mind goes all the way back to embracing a worldview. I can do whatever I want to do. Start to believe a lie, and a lie leads to a disordered life. Thank you, Daryl. So there's one thing I cannot do for you, and there's one thing God cannot do for you as we close. God will not violate human agency. In other words, God will not make you do something um, that you do not want to do. God will not make you choose what you think about. That is your responsibility. So, if abiding, are you still with me as we close? As you learn to abide in the truth of Jesus, you begin to know it and it will begin to set you free. So here's the thing, here's a simple strategy. If you have a porn addiction here today, or if you wanna undermine the structure and the rhetoric and the logic of anxiety in your life, you cannot or you do not have the strength to attack it straight on. Our starting point with toxic thoughts 
give up attacking those toxic thoughts right away. Don't go directly after them. In other words, you do not have the willpower in the moment to overcome comparison, jealousy, anger, right? I heard a tragic story this week of a man who, I'm not gonna get into the details, murdered several people, and this is what he said. He said that I just, in the moment, I didn't have the power. I felt like there was, I wasn't thinking. Those are the words that he used. And something came over me. In the moment, he did not have the power over a lie because he had been abiding in other things. We don't have enough willpower to address the addictions in our life. So how do we overcome depression, despair, hopelessness, whatever the issues that are confronted or we confront in our life? Number one, what you need to do is you have to prepare beforehand. Indirectly, you have to prepare beforehand. What does that mean? Well, as an athlete, if you're a great athlete, you don't just happen to be great in the moment. Steph Curry doesn't just happen to be great in the moment. Great athletes plan to be great, not in the moment, but through practice. Over and over and over, they practice, they practice, they practice, and they practice, practice? They practice, they practice, they practice, they practice. Some of you got that, that was Allen Iverson, right? Anyways, let's pull, come on, mine come back to me. They practice, they practice, they practice, they practice the truth, and in the moment, because they indirectly shaped their body muscles, everything through plyometrics, through strength training, through practice, they can do what they do when it comes to game time. The same is true of us. The way we open our lives to God and be who God has called us to be is to abide in the spiritual practices in Jesus. Well, Chris, as we close, um, I don't have enough time to do that. I, I don't have enough time. Maybe some of you are thinking, I don't have enough time for spiritual formation or spiritual practices. Well, let me just say this to you. That's a myth, number one. Number two, just so you know, everything we do is spiritual. Everything is all about spiritual formation. So binge watching Netflix, that's spiritual formation. Being on your phone seven hours a day, that takes a lot of spiritual practice. Right, going on YouTube and watching cats do crazy things for hours, that's spiritual formation. In fact, one philosopher said, every, everyone say every, everything. Everything you do does something to you. All things are spiritual formation. So here's the problem. Netflix is great. Man, if, if you binge watch it every now and then, that's great. But if all you do is binge watch, binge watch Netflix, right, you're, you're going to take on the mind of those shows that you're binging. Same with music, the same with your phone, the same with YouTube, the same with all these apps. Everything is spiritual formation. I'm not railing against all that stuff. I think some of those things are good. But if we want to be and to lean into the truth of who we are, as I close, we have to be committed to abiding in the words of Jesus. Wake up in the morning like Shane talked about a couple weeks ago before you put your feet. How do we do this before you put your feet on the floor? Say, good morning, Holy Spirit. On your way to work, 
uh, version is amazing. Turn it on. Put on the audio version. Don't read while you drive. And everyone said amen. And listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Get the Sermon on the Mount in your heart. Maybe at lunch. Maybe you got a 15-minute window. Just take your you version. You have it on your phone and go to John 1 and read through John's program. I promise you might not even understand any of it, but it's going to get in your heart. And you can start asking questions on your way home. Maybe before you get back to the house, you're really tired. What you can do is turn on a podcast. Turn on a Judas Smith. Turn on maybe, I don't know, Stephen Furtick. Maybe turn on um, a Shane Grove. Turn on a Tracy Wilde. Just get, get good truth in your heart. Right. Uh, if you're really tired one day before you go to bed, just t- put on some worship music and just listen to some gospel. Right? Listen to some good hymns. Listen to some good Worship music. This is how you learn to abide in God's truth. So I close here. I know we got to go. I'm a little bit late. Are you still with me? So, what's the truth about us here today? I got to say this as we close. It's not Drake. Drake is wrong, right? We don't start from the bottom and go to the top. Because of King Jesus, we have the victory. We're already at the top. So, uh, in faith and repentance and in the waters of baptism, You are not just a bundle of DNA. You're not just atoms. You're not just stardust. You're not just the result of your family tree. In the words of one scholar, you're not an orphan in the cosmos. In the words of Paul, you are no longer a refugee. You're no longer a no-hope person. You're no longer an angry vegan or an angry conservative or an angry social justice warrior, right? You're no longer um, just a dad. Can I get an amen to that with a dad bod? And I'm working on that one, right? You're not just a mom with mom jeans, but mom jeans are totally in. You're welcome International Women's Day, right? You're not just a kid who made dumb decisions. No, 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 you are way more than that. You belong to God's family. But here's my problem when we talk about belong, it's like we belong to so many different things. Belonging has become kind of a cliche, so it loses its power. To belong to the family of God, in other words, means you are a king and priest. You are a king and queen and priest. In other words, the God who created the Rocky Mountain Range, the Milky Way Galaxy, supernovas, has chosen you and wants to partner with you. This gets crazy to rule creation. Take that all self-help stuff, right? God comes to you in grace and he restores the royal image-bearing vocation of ruling with God over creation. That is who we are in King Jesus. This is not a hyper-Pentecostal thought as I end. This is from a Baptist minister, okay? He said, people don't realize when Paul talks about inheritance in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, when you suffer with me, you will be glorified with me. That's reference to inheritance. To be glorified with King Jesus does not mean you're going to glow like, um, like a cosmic uh, nightstick or what, nightstick, whatever. <laughs> glow stick, right? All right? I'm tired, guys. I'm so tired. Lord have mercy. It was a long night. Um, that's not what that means. To be glorified with God means, in the words of this one author, that in the new heavens and the new earth, right now you are practicing for this future galactic creation ruling. 
52,000 years from now, you will be ruling in some way in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh my God. I know we don't talk about that. That's a little bit crazy. Some of you are like, we've talked about Post Malone. We've talked about Hasatan, and we talked about galactic ruling. Chris, you're, you're crazy. No, this is who we are in Christ Jesus. We are rulers, and in our family, in our places of work, we are called to love. We're called to rule. We're called to use our gifts for the glory of Jesus. And everyone said amen. Amen.